Thanks for joining us for this very special episode. On this episode, I interviewed Charles Bonfiglio, who's best known for being the CEO of Meineke Muffler. And this interview is actually so good and basically chock full of information that we actually ended up splitting it into two parts. Uh, we talk about how he went basically in this first part from like clothing manufacturer to franchise owner to real estate developer, and eventually how it led him to start his own franchise, which is called Tint World. That's spelled T-I-N-T World, like the auto tinting for your car. I realized after the fact that I don't want to confuse anyone with the camping gear. So again, thanks for tuning in and hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Quick question. What's your biggest fear? Not meeting my expectations. In all aspects of life or just business? Well, business is definitely the forefront Mm -hmm. because it's what my hobby is. But in anything that I want to do, I really want to achieve whatever my, I set up my goals to be. And even when I fail, I feel like I'm learning something so I can succeed just the way I am. I think a lot of type A entrepreneurs kind of that same way. Cause honestly, I feel that sometimes too. I'm like, it was a good day, but was it as good as like, I could have made it. Did I get everything done that I wanted to? Is that kind of what you're saying you feel? Yeah, that and the fact that what I have in my vision, sometimes you have building blocks to get to where you want to go. And you have these other blocks that are big blocks to achieve, but you have to take care of the low hanging fruit till you get there. Right. So the biggest thing is I really want to get to the next block. And sometimes you have to get through the ones you're at to be able to break that barrier and get to the next row because otherwise you're not being wise with your investments. I mean, that might be a financial strain on either your brain or your pocket if you haven't gotten to where your initial goals were. So not be able to break through and get to my next goal, there's never an end. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take until I can start doing that project. So has there been anything over time that's kind of helped you with that? Let's see. Because I always hear like, get your goals, break them down. And it just seems so tedious sometimes. I don't know if there's a certain thing that's helped you over time to kind of get to that point. Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to grow businesses. I feel the exact same way. Why hasn't the podcast grown more? But I have to do these certain things to get to that next goal. So relentless persistence is really what I am. I kind of like think of myself as someone who just won't give up. I have a burning desire. I'm the first one in the morning. I'm the last one to leave my office. Sometimes I think that may not be the smartest thing, but it's just what I enjoy. I really enjoy my time to work on it. And I don't really ever think I'm not going to achieve my goal. I set them higher than I really want to, knowing that I'm going to get there. So I don't really believe that I'm not going to get to the goals. And I don't really set unrealistic goals. I'm not going to say, I'm going to make a billion dollars next year. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It has to make reasonable sense. But sometimes even with yourself, you got to be a little unreasonable so you can push yourself a little further than you normally would. That's kind of what the way I handle it and the way I grow with it. I never, ever stop. It just makes me work harder. Even when I have a tough time getting to reach some goal or and is an obstacle, I literally get to a point where I'll stop, I'll rant, then it's like right on to how do I figure this out? There's got to be a way to get there. And my mind just keeps working on it. And I'm sure everybody in their own way has it, but I know myself. I know exactly what I do. I go through a period of ranting and figuring it out. Then it's right on to, okay, let me put this process in place. I'm going to get there. Like, I just know that I'm going to get there. It's just a matter of putting that plan together of that obstacle that I've come across that's delaying me into my goal. As you get older, you get a little bit more aware of when you're complacent and when you're really just getting stuck and you got to think of another way to get around to get to your goal. far back to me anymore but tell all the rich guys that you work for to send their cars into me to make up for this and he says i'll do that 
just took this order and I just threw the order on the table and said, we're rich. <laughs> you know, just like that. You're telling me that you want all the franchisees to be successful like me, but yet you're not giving them the tools and you can't tell me not to do it now. Well, lo and behold, they did tell me not to do it. I had my accountant call me saying, you used to be my worst client and now you're my best. What did you do? I said, I got some advice from a friend. He goes, well, keep taking that advice. My name is Charles J. Bonfiglio. I am 56 years old. I stay young by working and doing what I love. To me, you never work a day in your life if you love what you do. And I get charged up every day to come and do what I do. And that's really how I started. I started as a teenager working for my father. And that's the only person I ever worked for in my life as a teenager in high school. He had a clothing factory in Brooklyn, New York, and he had women that worked for him. It was a neighborhood business, but he actually did some pretty big business. He was very successful uh, working with big companies like Norma Kamali, Jeffrey Bean, Calvin Klein, a lot of the big brands, and he did better clothing wear. And what they did was they basically designed it and they sent them the materials as well as all the, the threads and the fabrics and the zippers and everything that they needed. And it was a factory and they basically had sewed and pressed and shipped the product everywhere it went. So we were the actual people that put the product together and after it was designed. And so I learned right from high school after going after school, sweeping the floors, and then through fixing the sewing machines, changing needles. From that point, how to do pattern making. So they would send us these patterns and I have to lay the material on it and I would actually make all the patterns for the clothing. Sometime when I was young, probably 14, 15, my father used to take me to New York City from where we lived in Brooklyn and we would go there and I'd see these big billboards with the uh, Calvin Klein on the billboards and all these brand names. And I said to my dad, why can't we do that? Why can't we have a brand like that? And he said, Charles, I don't know anything about that. I learned this trait from my father who came here from Italy and was very well with clothing. I really didn't want to do it, but I had to provide and I wound up doing this and that's, I got good at it. And now I'm showing you the same thing, not because you're going to do this, it's just because what we do. And so I learned from my father generally how to treat people in business, how to respect your employees, how to build culture in a nice way. And he had a good life. And I saw that other friends of mine, their parents were going to jobs and they were working for other companies and some of them really good, some from schools and some from Wall Street and some from different areas. But I saw that my father had an easier life by actually owning his business because he had all these people work for him. He can come and go as he pleased. He can go to lunch. He was the boss, but he wasn't a tough boss. People just produced for him. He had a very good life, and I learned a lot from him. So as we evolved and I graduated high school, during that last year, my dad said, listen, I have so much work that I can handle. Why don't you and your sister, you know, open, take one of these properties over here, and I'll send you all the work that I don't use. So I basically, at first, I didn't really want to do that, but I really knew it so well. I figured, okay, why not? I mean, just I'll run the shop. I'll do all the extra work that he's overflowing that he doesn't do. So I did that for about six months and I made the condition with my father, I'm only going to do this, dad, if I can design my own clothing line because I want to get from where you are to up on that billboard. I want to be the brand in that billboard. And I don't really know how to do that. And my father said, listen, I'll help you the best I can, but I don't know that business, but you have to do it yourself. And he says, but I'll give you some guidance. So he said to me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to build a clothing line for teenage girls. I was doing a lot of those patterns and I felt that they needed something. How did I do it? I actually put an ad in the Women's Wear Daily newspaper, had a 
a girl uh, that was a designer for Norma Kamali uh, doing side work called me up, said, I'd like to design your line. She gave me a price. She said, I'll train you to do all the leg work and I'll do all the design work and I'll use your vision. And I said, great. And her name was Christine. And that was a really good turning point in my life. She got out of college. She worked for a big brand name. And she gave me a lot of information that I really wouldn't have had even through my father's knowledge. She told me how to find the right materials and pick it out and the colors and what was good for the season. With that and my knowledge of putting together clothing, I was able to produce my own clothing line with her that I went and it was all done. So now I have this sample clothing line where I scale it up with the sizes and it's hanging there. And it's a pretty good line and it's a full line, meaning it has shirts, jackets, pants, shorts. It was everything. And it was multiple things and multiple sizes and colors. And I also learned from that experience that you shouldn't build up too broad of a line because they have to stock that line. But that's something I should have probably one or two items instead of all these different things and all these different colors and patterns. It was beautiful, but it was broad. And I didn't have the funding to be able to really do that, not thinking about it going in. So these are the things you learn along the way. You can never learn unless you do these things. One second, if you don't mind, I'll just cut in from time to time because I can tell you're a good storyteller and we're going to get going, but I want to make sure everyone's on the same track first. So you're talking about your dad's business. Was it exactly that you started learning about? It was a clothing factory. Sometimes they refer to it as a sweatshop okay. where you go in there and there's women and men on sewing machines, sewing the clothes and putting them together and getting paid for the labor from the manufacturers that design those clothing. Years ago, before it went to China or other countries, a lot of it was done here in the USA. And so that was the factory that he had. It was a factory that was about maybe 20, 25 people, maybe 30 people that worked for him at a time. And they were a production company where a company like Norma Kamali would design a clothing. They would have a sample. They would send it to us. They'd say, how much would you charge to put this together if I gave you all the material in the thread? And we'd have to give a price on laying out the design, cutting the fabric, and putting it through the machines to get sewed, pressing it, bagging it, tagging it, shipping it to the warehouses in New Jersey at the time. And that's kind of what we did. So how old were you when your dad kind of gave you the opportunity? You said, was it opened up a second factory or a second location? When I graduated high school, I really didn't have any desire to work for anybody. And I kind of just by way of work for my dad after school, learned the business. But again, it was very simple for me to go in and he, what happened was he actually bought a bigger building that he was moving into and he still had the lease on the older one. So rather than give it up, he says, Charles, if you want, take the lease on the old building. You just graduated high school. I got so much work I can funnel to you and you can do it and build what you want. And I said, I really don't want to do this, dad. I don't want to do what you do, but I would be willing to do it if, as long as I can design a line. I want to be the designer. I don't want to be the contractor. And he said, well, you've got to work there because that's not my experience, but I'll do my best to help. And that's kind of how that went down. So that's what you're alluding to when you saw bigger brands on billboards and stuff. You kind of like, hey, I want to make my own clothing brand, probably like underneath my dad's name or whatever. But he wasn't doing that. He was just putting it together for other clothing lines and you wanted to build your own line. Right. I wanted to be the designer that builds lines and sends that stuff out to places like my dad to sew it up. And they get paid on the labor to sew it up and put it together. As a brand, we pay for that cost and whatever that actual cost is for the material and the labor to put it together and the shipping, now it gets marked up and put into stores for selling. So that's the brand that I wanted to become. Right. And it was beyond what my father has ever done or anybody in my family for that matter. Um, usually it was the big finance guys and the big designers that got together and designed these brands. And again, at that point, there was no really way to know about that stuff. I just had it in my blood to do this and had a desire to do it and started to work on it. 
and I created the line. And after it was all done, I said to my dad, okay, dad, I have the line designed. What do I do now? He goes, well, now you got to go sell it. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, How do I sell it? And he says, well, there's department stores in New York City and there's other smaller stores around Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, you know, the areas you can go and you can sell it. And you, so you take a sample bag and you go and make appointments and you go with it. So I actually, wow, this was really not what I thought I had to do. Yeah, I didn't think it through. I was right. like, okay, I'm going to go do this. So I went out, I made appointments. I found out what days, you know, all the stores in New York, are the big stores, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Bamberger's, all these big stores at the time. You go there and when you walk in, you see like a line of all these people before you that are trying to sell to these buyers in these stores. So it wasn't like, it's just your appointment. It's like you're sitting online with all these people trying to sell their line. So after doing that for a week or two or three, maybe, I was getting no, no, no. And I just really wasn't used to that as a young guy. I wasn't prepared for the no's. It was something new to me. So I went back to that. This is that. What do you think I should do? I just stopped getting anywhere with this. So again, the option was go to some smaller stores or one, instead of going to New York City, that's the capital of fashion and it's going to be harder to get in there. Go out to New Jersey, some of those smaller department stores that have, they're not so in the New York City thing where they have the first of everything. So I actually took that advice. I went out to New Jersey and I went to a place that was called Bamberger's. They're not around any longer, but it was another division of either Macy's or Nordstrom's or one of them. That was another small department store that they had. I went into it and it, coincidentally, the person that just had gotten hired as a buyer was a young girl that just graduated college. And when I went in there, it wasn't a busy day. She was new and saw my line and she really just fell in love with it. She said, I really like what you have. This is amazing. How did you come up with this? And I guess she really got it. And she says, I really want to put an order with you. So she took out this big eight and a half by 14 paper and wrote me an order. And I didn't even know. I'm okay, thanks. I'll take the order. And I said, thank you. And I just was happy that she came to the order. I didn't even know. And I looked at the bottom of the page and it was a million dollar order. I mean, there was really zeros in the bottom of that page that a million dollars. I just couldn't even believe it. So I took the paper I thanked her. I walked out. I got in the car and I just drove home. Like I just couldn't wait to get home to tell my parents. At that point, there was no cell phones, no other call or anything like that. So I had to come home. So I went home and I walked to the house. It was around dinner time. Parents were at the table. My sister was at the table. I just walked in and I just took this order and I just threw the order on the table and said, we're rich. <laughs> you know, just like that. The name of the company was called G-Force. I trademarked the brand at the time. I owned it. I trademarked it. It was my own company, my own line. And my father took it and he just looked at the order and he said, Son of a bitch, it's a million dollar order. I can't believe it. Then my father turned over the back and they had all the terms and conditions on the back. And the terms and conditions are, you have to make this order, you have to ship it to them. You don't get paid for 90 days. If after 90 days they don't sell, they can mark it down, they can sell it at that rate, or if it don't sell after that, then they can return it to you. So my mind is thinking, how am I gonna pay for a million dollar order worth of material, running through the machines, labor, and wait 90 days? So I didn't think this through. And there was no shock tank at that time where you can go on TV and say, I got a million dollar order, who wants to fund this thing? There was nothing there like that. And my father was the richest guy I knew, and he was the most knowledgeable that I knew, so I didn't have anywhere to go. And he says, I don't even know where to go with this. So we went to the bank and we sat down at the bank and my father says to the banker, you know, we got this order we do and there was something called factoring where they can loan you the money uh, secured against your house, your bank account or everything else, but you pay them 10%, almost like a VIG, you pay them 10% back until a month till that thing is paid off. And we walked out of there and I said, dad, I'm not putting our family at risk for what I want to do. 
I want to do this on my own. This was something I wanted myself. Was this at the end of the 70s? This was probably 1979, 80, about that time. It might have been like between 79 and 81, because I moved down to Florida in 1983. That's where it segued into it. After I was done with this, I didn't fulfill the order. I basically worked it for like a week or so, trying to figure out a way to get the funding to be able to do this thing. And I really just didn't see clear pathway to be able to do it. So I called up the girl who gave me the order in the department store. I thanked her for the order and I apologized that I couldn't complete the order. I was too new of a company and I would love the opportunity to do it in the future. But right now I just couldn't fund that kind of an order. She was very cordial and thanked me and told me, let me know when you're ready. So I was really happy about that. But at the same time, like I was walking away from the dream I had. So I went back to my dad and I said, what do I do now? What do I do? And he says, Charles, because you got a great line. Obviously you see that. He says, you can handle smaller quantities. Why don't you go around to stores in Brooklyn, Long Island, Staten Island, Queens, and go to smaller boutique stores and take smaller orders from them. You could run those through the machines and get paid weekly or monthly. And that's what I wound up doing. I wound up making all the money back that I invested. And I think I made a $20,000 profit for that whole season, which was very large money back then. And I wound up putting that in the bank. After that was all done, I got more... It was either do another season again and try the same thing, but I just didn't feel it. I wanted the big bang. I wanted to go something big. And I knew that my father took himself where he is, but I had bigger dreams. And I felt if I stayed with him, I would only be able to come similar to what he came because I was relying on dad. What do I do next? Rather than getting out there in the world and relying and surrounding myself with people that know as much as my dad and maybe in some ways more. And I respect my dad 100% for everything he gave to me, but I just needed to be around people that would allow me to grow without limiting my knowledge and the people that I can speak to, to my dad. And with that, I decided to go into a business that was completely different and something that while I worked for my dad through my high school years in his business in the clothing factory, on the weekends, my friend's older brother had car stereo shops and custom accessory centers. So I would actually work there for the weekend, not even make any money. I would just do it free. I'd just go there and I just love working with cars. It's 15, 16, 17. And as it came to drive, I bought my own cars and I was customizing them. People started asking me to do their cars. And so I did a few of them. I did some neighbors. I did some friends. They paid me some money, but it wasn't about that. I just really enjoyed putting the systems together and customizing them and getting a lot of recognition in Brooklyn. And so that I felt maybe there's a business here. Maybe this is something I can do. But I did this while I was working with my father. So I had the brainstorm idea that I was going to move to Florida and was going to go a one-way ticket down there and open up a custom accessory center, an auto center that would sell mobile electronics, car stereos, custom accessories, custom wheels, and stuff like that. And so I had a clear picture. I wanted to be similar to what I knew my friend's brother did. I probably could be able to put that together. Let's talk about finding freelance talent for your business or project. Finding the right freelancer can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Where do you go to find that talent? How much will it cost? How can you be certain they'll even deliver? Thanks to Fiverr, finding the right freelancer doesn't have to be a struggle. I've used Fiverr before, and one of the best things about it is how quick turnaround is to actually get a project done. And Fiverr's Marketplace helps you get more done with less. See, Fiverr connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. Find out what you're looking for instantly. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. 
You'll know exactly what you're paying for upfront, no negotiation needed, and it's 24-7 customer service. Take five and check out Fiverr.com and you'll receive 10% off your first order by using my code MILLIONAIRE. It's so easy. Don't waste any time and get your service done by going to Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R.com and use code MILLIONAIRE to get 10% off your first order. Fiverr, it starts here. And point out too, you're saying just not to downplay your dad at all. You're just saying you weren't necessarily like in love with the clothing industry. And that's the only thing you felt like you could know from him. And then you had another passion you're talking about with cars and these vehicles. And so you figured if you jump into this, you're going to be surrounded by so many different people and learn other different tactics within business other than just being a clothing manufacturer, if you will. Right. I only wanted that clothing business, that factory to make the clothing. It was a catapult to me being able to be a designer, which is something bigger. And that intrigued me because I couldn't do that. I just didn't want to stay there and do only what my father knew. But I wanted to basically be more than that. And you're right. When I said I wanted to do something different, I wanted to do something that I didn't count on my father to tell me. And by doing that, I would have to figure it out on myself. And I would have to evolve in my own time, in my own way, because I cared about and loved my family so much that I would ask them for a lot of opinion. Unlike the kids today, for the most part, and they think they know more, I want to be a YouTuber or I want to go to college for I don't even know what, but I really wanted to learn and I wanted to do something on my own. And I'm here to tell you that I did not attend college. It wasn't even something that my parents asked me if I wanted to do, my friends Most of them didn't attend college. In that era of that time, the thing to do, or at least in the family and the friends that I were around in Brooklyn, I just wanted to be my own business owner. I figured if you're going to go to college, it's got to be for a doctor, a lawyer, something that is worthy of having to have that technical training. I felt the values that I got from my father's business would allow me to grow a business. I don't think I'm going to learn anything in college in my mind. Why would I want to spend that time and money where I could be ramping up a business that I felt, and I did do it, don't get me wrong, I made money in the factory right out of college. I'm right out of high school the first two years. I made money while I was doing the design line and I made profit on the design line. I just felt like I was not going to get to that big designer category without doing it on my own. If I was going to do something my own, I wanted to do it, number one, in a sunny place like Florida where they had palm trees and it was always going to be nice. I mean, I had like a vision. And the vision was I wanted to be on the beach, having a good time, not in the winter, uh, wanted to be on my own, close enough to my parents that I can see them, but not so close that I would rely on them to build business. And it was a conscious decision that I did. So I literally took two suitcases. I sold my car. I sold my weight set. I lived in my parents' basement, you know, and I had a great. They lived in a nice neighborhood and I sold everything as far as my possessions. And with that and the $20,000 that I made on the line and the money, I gave the business to my sister. I said, you can have the factory business. And she took that on and I moved to Florida and one way ticket and came down here. And I thought I was going to conquer the world. And that's how I came to Florida. Where in Florida? Well, first, when I came down, I didn't even have a plan, a rent the car book. And there was no hotel because it was around spring break. So even the hotels were turning me away. So I actually wound up sleeping in the rent the car for the first night or two. And then I ran into two high school girls that moved down here in a club and they invited me to stay with them for a couple of days. That was just a friend thing. 
to be there for a couple of days while I got set in. And then finally, I worked my way into getting a hotel and staying there because they had cats. They were climbing on me. I was sleeping on the couch. I really did. It was a great experience. It was like in Davie, Florida. And so I wound up uh, getting my way into a hotel. In that hotel, my first course of action was to get a car so I can get rid of the rental car. I did that within a week or two. Second course of action was to get a apartment so I can get out of the hotel and have something that I can live with. And then the third thing was to get a job in the car accessory business so I can learn from different installers, different vendors, learn the lingo down here. That was really a job, not just work with my friend's older brother. And which I did, I think I came down and I worked with a company called Sound Device, which is down here. It was a big home and car audio electronics store. And I started to learn how to sell and install and professionally do. And I actually became pretty good at it. One second, just so everyone knows, because again, everyone's listening worldwide, like you and I are in Florida. I'm in Northeast Florida, but Davie, Florida, just outside Fort Lauderdale or Miami is kind of where you settled in. It's just south of Fort Lauderdale, north of Miami, but in South Broward County. And it was right by Fort Lauderdale. It just happened to be that's where they live. It had smaller homes and that's where they rented their house and they lived there. So again, I stayed a couple of days and then just moved on from there. Thanked them and just moved on and got my own place and I had to get set up. How much money did you fly down with? Like how much money did you have? I had about $30,000. I had the 20000 that I made from selling all the brand merchandise that I sold. And I had about $10,000 saved up from selling my car and money that I accumulated. And I figured to be able to open the business that I needed would be somewhere between fifty dollars to $80,000. So I did need a loan to be able to get to where I was at that time. This was in 1983 that I moved down to Florida. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So you're moving down with about 30K, 24 years old, early 80s. I guess you wanted to work in an audio shop first because you said you needed money at least first before you could even open your own business? Yeah, I think I was 21 or 22 years old. Okay, 21, 22. Yeah, like that age. So after working in the stereo shop for a couple of months, I had a call from my mom and she says, you know, we have a family event, the wedding in New York. Why don't you fly up for the weekend and you see your cousins and come to the wedding? And I thought that was a nice idea. So I flew up there and at the wedding, I ran into two of my cousins and two brothers. And they basically said, what are you doing in Florida? And I kind of told them what I just told you. I'm trying to do my thing and wasn't really getting it. And while I was in Florida, I went to the bank, tried to get a loan for opening up the business. They said, no, we don't have a loan for you. I went to looking at properties and I found the Built the Suit Auto Center and I really liked it a lot. And the landlord told me, well, you know, what do you cost stereo, accessories? I don't know, we don't want to do that. And I said, well, why? And I really know what I'm doing, which I kind of did, but I didn't. And he says, well, we just really want more mature businesses in there. And so I couldn't get a loan, I was working in this job, figuring it out, not really getting uh, respected for what I want to do because it really was a niche business that they really didn't understand. So while I was in New York and at the uh, wedding, my cousins told me, I said, what are you guys doing? And this is, well, we just opened up a franchise about a year ago together in New Jersey, moved from Brooklyn to New Jersey a little before I moved to Florida. They're about a year in and they're doing really well. And they said they both bought cars and homes in New Jersey. They're almost paid off their loan in the first year and they're ready to open up their second store. And it was a Meineke franchise. What type of franchise? It was a Meineke discount muffler franchise. Okay. When they told me that, I'm like, what's that? That's mufflers? And they go, yeah. I go, there's really money in mufflers and we're doing pretty well. So they said to me, why don't you come out to New Jersey after the weekend on Monday and take a look at the store. Maybe you'll like it. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And I went to my dad and I said, would you take, let's take a ride out and take a look. So I was there for a few days. On that Monday, we drove out to New Jersey, 
pulled up to the store and I saw a gravel parking lot, like a three-bay gas station with a smiling muffler on it, Meineke. Those cars coming in and out looked busy. I said, they might be doing well. So I walked in. I saw my two cousins behind the counter, taking orders from customers and handing them to the technicians that were doing the work. It looked like they were happy having a good time. So it really wasn't the business I wanted, but they looked like they were having a good time in it. So it was something to consider. And after being there for a couple of hours, we went to lunch together and they said, you know, listen, in Florida, it might be a new thing for you. Maybe you want to try this out. Here's the franchise development person's number and give them a call. Well, at least they're still kind of in cars too. It's a little bit different than maybe accessorizing and everything and maybe starting a business by yourself with your own company, at least if you're going to franchise and kind of see a model of it. I think it's really important if anyone wants to do something like that, at least shadow somebody for a day or something like you got to see your cousins and got inside knowledge of what it's really like. It's not like you just went to Meineke and let me open up a franchise right away. Even on the drive home, my dad and I talked to my dad, he goes, Charles, I could see you doing something like this. It might not be exactly what you want to do, but you could learn from this. You can grow from this. And I think they'll give you a lot of support. And why reinvent it? I mean, after you open up one of them, if you really like it and you learn your stride, then you can maybe expand and do the other things you want to do. And so he had confidence in doing a franchise because he felt that I would have something that would guide me through the system and you know, give me a lot of support. And it was a proven model. At that time, franchising wasn't really as popular as it is today, but I saw my cousins doing it. They were doing well. So I went down to Florida and I submitted for the application to, wasn't sure I was going to do it, but I said, let me just see if I'm going to get it approved. And about a couple of weeks later, I mean, there was no email back then, of course. I had a mail came in and it said, congratulations, you've been preliminary approved for a franchise based on your application. We'd like to have you go further. So with that letter, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I went to my work where I was working at the car stereo shop and I showed a couple of the other techs that were working there. You know, and I've told them I'm going to open my own business and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but when I showed them the letter, they were like, oh my God, you really are going to open up a business. Can I work for you? So I saw that even they believed in me more when I had a brand name behind. And then I called up the landlord. And the guy's name was Marty. I still know the guy from this day. And he has properties all over South Florida. And I said, listen, I know you turned me down for this other business of car stereo and accessory center, but what about a franchise? He goes, oh, franchise. I love that. What kind? I said, Mike, oh, that's a big company. We'll give you an end cap in the place. We'll build it out for you. We'll give you some free rent, nice long lease. I'm like, really? I said, I'm the same guy. Why would you <laughs> let right. do that, but not this? And what I really want to do, and I still was stuck on trying to do that. It was, no, we like brands and proven business models. And plus, when we go get loans to build the building, when we have a proven model, it's easy for us to get loans because we're basing them on proven models rather than a new model. And oh, okay. Then I went to the bank. And the same girl I spoke to at the bank that earlier told me, I can't give you a loan. I said, I got this letter. You have any loans for this? Oh, it's a franchise. Yeah, let me look this up. We have a special SBA loan for that. So I wound up seeing that before I was even a franchise, just by getting a letter of approval, the banks will want to lend me money. The real estate agents will give me property. And the employees of other places that didn't believe me were now like, let me come work for you. I always thought the franchise was about bringing customers in, but it was really given everything. Everything got better. And I decided, let me go ahead and take up on this. I mean, there's too much momentum pushing me forward to me not to take this opportunity. And it wound up to be about $85,000 of a franchise. I got approved for a loan. I had the place built out. I opened up my first franchise location. And within a year later, I purchased a second one. And then about a year and a half to two years later, a third one. I was going to say, if I could slow you down there before I get too far into it. It's kind of funny, like you were saying, everyone had way more confidence in you once you had that brand name behind you, even though you really still wanted to do your own car stereos. And was it just other things other than just car stereos? 
Well, it was car stereo and aftermarket accessories, custom wheels and tires, window tinting and detailing cars, all kinds of car and truck accessories that we would put on. And it's kind of what I do today in my company that I franchise now. But at that time, that's what I wanted to do. But this was a stepping stone for you. Again, it was just that brand name. It's funny how much energy it seems like people got behind you and you even seeing that. It's kind of funny. You're like, I'm literally the same guy. You just see a brand name. But if that's going to help you, it's not worth you going against the tide over and over and go to a hundred different banks to try to get this loan if you can't versus how much easier life was in starting your first business with being a franchisee. It was like somebody opened the door and said, you're in the club. Right. We're going to take you through. It really was just like that. There was no more guesswork. No more, how should I do this? Or how should I do that? They kind of gave you a system. There was a four-week training that I went to. At the time, it was in Dallas, Texas, or in Houston, Texas. I came back from the training. I did everything, including working in a store. I came back. I opened up my first store, and I really started getting my hand to it. I really didn't think I was a great salesperson as a younger. I didn't think about it because I never really was. But after coming back and knowing something and being trained how to answer the phone, how to work with people, and how to run their system... It just came to me and I actually became very good at what I did. Customers liked me, dealing with me because I was just straight with them. It was show and tell. Here's underneath the car. Here's the things that you need, the connector pipe, the muffler, the tailpipe, need a couple of clamp brackets. Here's what the price is. Do you want me to do this for you? Okay, thank you. I'll get on it right away. It was just that simple. It was a natural for me. It was a really good experience to get me into business and show me how to work with technicians and employees and different systems that they had. And really from there, it just evolved into getting wanted to be not just a franchisee. I wanted to be the franchisee of the brand. That was my next goal. I wanted to be number one in the chain. And every week we would actually get a report showing the list of all the stores from top to bottom of the highest ranking stores. There's so much more I can tell you about how I climbed that list and what stumbles I had, but I eventually got to the top and then opened nine of them. But that's kind of the stepping way how I learned along the way. It's just really, I learned from a lot of other franchisees. I took an interest in other franchisees. Whenever I would go on vacation, I'd stop into other franchisee stores and talk with them and ask them what they did differently. Everybody operated a little differently. Everybody had a strong point and a weak point. I've learned from that and take those things and continually implement. Quite frankly, I learned a lot from my technicians. I became friends with them and some of them worked for Midas and some of them worked for Precision Tune. And I learned how they did different things in those other places that I started implementing into my own store. That's how I started to really now gain traction on having customers come back to me from out. Charles, I need this. I, you're the only guy I trust. What do I do? I'm not, I could take care of that for you. Don't worry about it. I got a guy who does this. And I started lining up my store with the right team that covered every area, which was really a little bit different from what the franchise typically did. They didn't even know how I was doing these ridiculous high numbers in Florida, because Florida wasn't one of their strong areas of sales. The Northeast was because they had the snow and the salt that was rotting out the exhaust year after year. And people, it was really big business up there. In Florida, all the stores weren't doing well. And just by way of learning from employees that were working to other places, I said to them, I says, how come I can't do the numbers up like they're doing in New York? And they goes, didn't mind if you tell you that? I go, tell me why? That there's no salt down here and no snow and no seasons. I'm like, what about the salt from the sea? Doesn't that? No, 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 no. We just don't have that. The car's exhaust systems are going to last three, four times longer. So it's not as hot of a commodity. So I said, well, what did Midas do? What does Goodyear do? I asked all my techs, what does Position Tune do? And they said, well, we do these other things. And I said, what? And they said, well, we do brakes and we do suspension parts and exhaust and alignments and batteries and tune-ups and water pumps and air conditioning service. I'm like, well, how do I do that? 
And they said, well, literally I gave each one of them a job. Tell me what I have to do to do all those different things and categories. Where do I buy the parts from? What do I quote the prices at? What do their menu boards say? How do I work this? And I learned from them. And lo and behold, that's what brought me to the number one franchising the chain. And nobody at that time knew what I was doing. All they knew was that this whiz kid in Florida was just really banging it out. Every other store in Florida is way below 50% of the average store sales. But this one guy is just banging out of the park, store after store. He must be really good. I wasn't really good, I guess. I just started to apply the weak spots that the Meineke system had in their chain was in areas that did provide a high demand for exhaust service. I added additional services that allowed me to grow the company. And at that time, there was no computers. It was all handwritten invoices. They were just calculating the royalty fees and the sales off of the gross sales. Didn't know what was encompassed in those sales at the time. But I later found out when they came down to visit me and they saw what I was doing years later, they said, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. That's not approved service. And I'm like, I'm just doing what customers ask me for. If they come in and say, I want a tune-up, I got to do the tune-up. I'm not going to tell them down the street. Or, and how do you think I'm paying you? I didn't think I'm number one. How do you think I'm doing all this? If you look at my exhaust, it's only 30% to 40% of my overall sales in every one of my stores. You really want to lose all that? So we went back and forth a little while with this thing. And again, when you're younger, you're a little more timid and hot-headed. I just really didn't handle it well, but I dealt with it. And I got a legal letter saying, if I don't cease and desist, they're going to take my franchise away. What year was it? Because I want to keep straight, like what year this was. In the late 80s, I got the letter. And the way it worked is that by this time, I had about three locations. It was probably late 80s. And you're still in your mid to upper 20s. Yeah, just get approaching 30 yeah. and Getting it all doing really well. well. I'm making money, but I get a call and I heard for the first time an operations person from the company's going to come down and see me. I was so excited. I just built this new store. It was really, it was the biggest, it was a six-base store, the biggest they had in the chain. Nobody ever built anything bigger than a four-base store at the time. And I built this big six-base store. It was a new construction. And I thought they were coming back down to just congratulate me and see what I'm doing and why I'm doing so well. I wanted to be the operations guy that came down. He walked in the store with like a clipboard and he was like, well, that's not allowed. Oh, you got batteries. That's not in proof service. Oh, what's that sign? Tune up. You're not going to do those. And I was like, are you kidding me? I thought you down here. I mean, I'm knocking out of the park. Yeah, but you're not doing what's proper services. I just thought I was taking care of the customer. So that happened. That's when the letter came and I was really distraught. I thought they were really proud of me. Instead, they were really coming down on me. And then I literally sold them with the fact that 30% of my sales, I'm doing nearly a million dollars in this store, over a million dollars in this one. You're basically talking about two thirds of your royalties are going to go away. The guy you're bragging about, but now just because you found out that I'm doing something different, I didn't know it was a problem, but I have to survive. And you can't tell me not to do it now. Well, Lo and behold, they did tell me not to do it <laughs> right. the first time. So there was a three-step process to this. So the first time they told me not to do it, and I actually wound up selling one of my first stores that I opened. And then I had two other stores that I was doing it. And those stores were doing really well. And one of them had a place right next door. And I said, listen, if you really make me not do this, I'm going to open up the place next door and I'm going to send all the other work to them. They said, go ahead and do that. So I opened up a Firestone Center right next door to my Meineke. And when customers came into Meineke and they wanted tune-ups, so I'd send them next door. And they wanted mufflers, I'd send them next door. But my sales in this particular Meineke store went from almost $800,000 down to $350,000. And all that money went to the place next door and that grew even bigger. I really didn't want to do this, but that's what they actually wanted me to do. So I did that. 
And as we were going along, I started to want to buy my own property. And I'm paying all this rent in all these stores that I'm developing, but the rent goes up and up every year. And if I actually bought the property, I'd be able to pay it off. So at the end of my franchise agreement, I own the property free and clear. I'm making double income. I'm making the rent to myself because it's paid off and I'm making the money from the business. And if I sell the business, I'm making rental income, just exiting and taking that money and opening up two or three more stores with that money, but still collecting the rent. But I really wasn't sure how to do that. And that's where I think a lesson is learned of sometimes you never know in life who's going to be the one to help you do these things. And it was just a guy that came in off the street that was about my age, graduated college. He had big debt on his hand. He was working for a big company in Miami, building big buildings. He was a finance guy for these big construction companies. He just comes in and he had an old SAP. I'll never forget. He had this SAP, older one. And on SAP, I don't know if you noticed, but those older cars, they are very expensive to fix. So he pulled in and he had his whole exhaust system dragging on the ground. Howard comes in, his name was Howard, and he says, you know, I need help, man. I don't have a lot of money. But usually people would say, I'm sorry, this is the price and you're done. I don't know what it was, but I was drawn to him and I felt for him and I liked him. So I actually took this car into the shop and I said, listen, this Swiss cheese in these pipes, it's like holes throughout it. I don't know what I can do for you. He goes, please, 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 you got to help me. I don't have any money. I really am broke. My college is killing me the funds. I'm just working as an intern for this company. I'm like, okay, let me see what I can do. I went to my techs outside. They looked at it. They didn't even want to work in the car. Again, I liked the guy and I just decided I was going to do it myself. So I went out in the shop. I spent several hours literally welding the holes. And as I'm welding them, they're melting because the pipes are so rusty. So I actually took pieces of tubing, flattened it out, made patches, and literally patched around the holes and bolted up the system at several hours of work, finished the job, handed him the keys and said, good luck, pal. I'm not charging you for this one. I hope everything works out for you. I just felt bad and I just let him go. And I said, one more thing. I said, don't bring your car back to me anymore. But tell all the rich guys that you work for, <laughs> send their cars into me to make up for this. And he says, I'll do that. So he sent other people come in. And the reason why this is a really unusual thing is because you never know when life is going to help you. A couple of months later, Howard pulls up again, and he actually needs brakes on the car. The pedal's going down to the floor. Same thing. I don't have any money. So I actually called around junkyards to find out where we can get the calipers that are used. I called around parts stores where I can get the rebuild kits that I can build them, then they're cheaper, and then I would just put it all on for them. I mean, I got them used rotors and calipers. I said, I'm not guaranteeing any of it. You go and buy it all. This is where it is. I mean, it was like a $3,000 job, calipers and rotors and pads on that car. We called the dealership. So I wound up getting all the used parts located to him. He went and picked them up, brought them to me. And again, none of my employees wanted to do this work because it was grunt work. And I don't know how he made me do this, but he got me to do it for him. I went out in the bay and I spent almost all day cleaning the calipers, rebuilding. It's like a challenge to me. Put them together, got the car working. And once again, I said, Howard, here's the keys. Send me more people, but don't come back with more problems. He left. And a couple of months later, he stopped in. And I'm like, oh, God. And he goes, what do you got now? He goes, nothing. I just stopped to say hello. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I want to take you to lunch. I said, really? It was nothing expensive, just someplace around here. So he took me to the diner and he sat in the diner and he asked me, he says, you know, how come you don't own your own property? I says, Howard, I would love to do that. I've been thinking about doing that. I don't know how to really buy property, build my building. And I'm trying to learn it, but I don't know that. And he goes, well, I went to school for this. He goes, I'll help you do it. I says, let me go back and look at your P&Ls and I'll help you get financing and funding. And I said, really? So we went back 
My wife worked with me at the time, and she was in the bookkeeping end. Went back, he looked at my books, and went, this can't be right. He goes, you're, you're driving a brand new Corvette. you got beautiful house on the beach. He goes, you're making money. Why does your financials? I said, Howard, I don't know. I don't know financials. I said, you know, how do you do your money? I says, I take all the cash that I put in and I put it in the safe and I take all the money. I put it in the bank and it pays the bills. And so I'm saving money. That was no, 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 no. He says, here's what I want you to do. I need you to deposit every single penny in the bank, regardless. He goes, and then get yourself a credit card and pay off all your personal business expenses and your lunches and your dinners. And you just put it all through the business. So it'll actually reduce your tax liability, but show the banks what you really make it. I said, so he gave me a little formula what to do. We spoke to my wife and I. We did that for the rest of the year. We cleaned it all up. I had my accountant call me saying, you used to be my worst client, and now you're my best. What did you do? I said, I got some advice from a friend. He goes, well, keep taking that advice. <laughs> Lo and behold, at the end of the year, Howard came and saw me again, and he says, let me take a look at the financials now. And he was like, perfect. This is what I need. He took me to the bank. He got me a loan to build the building subject to approval of the property. He said to me, Charles, let's find the piece of property you like, and I'll help you build the building. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, how do I find the best property? He goes, well, do you know where good stores are? I mean, I didn't really know the technical term at that time, demographics, but I just basically called up all the managers that I knew from all the different stores, Pep Boys, Goodyear, Firestone. I called everybody. What's the best store in your chain? And everybody told me there's one area. And I said, so how would this city we want to go to? The best stores are over there. And they're bragging how great it is. So we went over there and drove the neighborhood and we found a piece of property. That's pretty interesting. You said you called all your competitors, like their 1-800 line to try to figure out where their best property. No, I actually called the actual store. When I say I called the competitors, I was very friendly within the community because again, when you have several stores, I think I had four of them at the time. I had different employees that worked for me. Maybe they worked for somebody else. They worked for me and somebody that worked for me knows the manager in another store. If I needed to get something from Tire Kingdom, I knew the manager there. If I needed to get something from Goodyear Tire, I'd know the manager. So we'd work together in the industry. But when I started calling them, I would say to the people that I knew in those stores, what's the best store in your chain in South Florida? Where is it? Well, a Lord Hill store is the best store. What's your best store? Same thing. Lord Hill makes a fortune. That's a great area. And so based on the referrals of where each company told me their best stores were, I figured I want to be where their best stores are. I'm right in the middle of it. So that's how I started to look in that area and found the piece of property with Howard. He had literally got in the car and drove with me. I was unaware of what to do. And his car that you fixed, or did he have a new car by now? No, he came and he said, I want to drive in your Corvette convertible with you. <laughs> he goes, I just want to hang out with you. So I said, fine. So we drove around the area and we found it. Like he said, that's it. And then we called up, we negotiated a deal. He helped me with the contract. And then after the contract was subject to the loan approval, helped me submit the paperwork to the bank in an orderly fashion, I learned he didn't just do it. He showed me how to do it. I became an expert in creative finance through this gentleman. And so I did that. And then when I was done, I said, well, now what do I do? He goes, well, I got a friend that's a builder. I'm going to tell him to work with you and you just pay him 10% to use his GC license. You use all his contractors and he'll guide you and coach you through building a building. So along that building project, I got my GC license through learning on the job how to run building and construction. I worked with the architects, the engineers. I worked with all the subcontractors. I was on the property every day. And I basically just took his lead and he quoted the jobs. We got it all done and we got the job done on time, on budget, and the store was open. When that store opened, it's the only store that Meineke ever had that did over a million dollars in its first year in existence. 
So that showed me that this is the way, building the right system. And from now I'm already a seasoned guy with several stores under my belt. I knew what I wanted and I wanted the ideal store. As soon as I got that store up and running and I saw the million dollars in the first year, that store opened in late 94, 95. And then it took a year to get over the million dollars, which I believe was 96 the first year, first full year. After that happened in 97, I decided that's what I want to do. I want to buy more property. When it comes to running your business, having a system for time tracking, work monitoring, and payments is vital. If you have a small company, you know it was rare when someone actually submitted their timesheet when they were actually supposed to. And when they did, there wasn't a way of knowing if it was accurate, which as a business owner is a nightmare for your invoicing, payroll, and basically your pocketbook. But all of that doesn't have to be a massive headache. It actually can be pretty enjoyable and take less than 10 minutes with Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes invoicing super easy. Since your team's already tracked their billable time, all you have to do is export the invoice and send it to your clients. The beauty of Hubstaff is that it's not designed for just one type of business, which is probably why they have over 34,000 companies using their application. So to help your business get started with Hubstaff, use promo code YOLO, that's Y-O-L-O, and you'll get 60 days free when you sign up for a plan. And for more information on how Hubstaff actually got started, go check out episode 164, where I've interviewed the founder, Dave Navote. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. At this point, again, you're in your mid thirties, you'd say we're in 94. Yeah, about that. What's interesting to me is that even from your father's factory, you went from clothing manufacturer to making wanting to do your own clothing line, right? And then you wanted to do car accessories, but couldn't do it. Got to be like a muffler man, basically. Yes. And then you added in those things to make it more profitable. And now you're basically becoming real estate developer for your own properties. So it's kind of interesting. Do you even think about that at that point in time? All those different things like your dad, right? He did one industry, one thing his whole life versus you already kind of switching careers multiple times within this. To me, it was just an evolution. Again, it's also because why I came down to Florida is to meet other people that were like-minded. So I saw other franchisees of Meineke that were been at their multiple stores starting to buy properties and build buildings or buy an existing building and retrofit it for their business. So I felt that they can do it, I can do it, and I'm asking them questions, but I still was unsure and unclear how exactly to do it. And Howard was the conduit to get me from being a renter to an owner in commercial real estate development. I really enjoyed that. And this was the guy I just helped out. It just sometimes you help people, you never know what you're going to get. I couldn't have paid. I couldn't have went to college for the experience that he had from all these high level builders in Miami and his college degree. I learned so much. He even told me what books to read. I mean, and I was also inspired by. There was the art of the deal, the book about, I think it was uh, Trump had built this empire in New York City. I read that as a kid because he was from Brooklyn, Queens, like his family, and he built real estate. So I figured, you know what? I read that book. I always had in mind I wanted to do it, but I really didn't know exactly how to do it. And I was learning by other franchisees. When he came along, 
he gave me the roadmap and gave me the confidence to just go through with it. It was a huge success and allowed me to do what I do today. It really grew. I would not be able to make as much money incrementally without having to work. It transformed my earned income to passive income by the results of the real estate development I did. Not knowing it was going to be that big of a deal later on, realizing that these are the best deals I have made, it allowed me to grow in a way where I could actually incrementally make more money, not increased rent, and actually get tax write-offs through the depreciation value of the real estate and other elements that were really beneficial to a business owner. I fully believe that if you're going to be in the business of franchising, if you can fully almost exploit that franchise to utilize their brand name for your growth, your development, your training, your support, your real estate, your third-party endeavors, all based. I mean, when I went to the bank to get the loan for the property, it wasn't like, oh, you're just a guy. Oh, you own four stores. You're successful. You've got clean financials. We're going to give you the money to buy the building. They were even more willing to do it because I had experience with the brand. And just so you know, when I first went to build that building, I went and I asked the bank, would you lend me the money to do a company that does aftermarket accessories and stereos? And they said, no. They said, your expertise is in this, so we're going to let you do that. And that's the one we're approving for you. And so even with that, now again, this building that I built was a 10-bay uh, center. Meineke did not even approve it when I sent them the building plans. The way I got them to approve it, I went to the bank and I said, you got to do me a favor. And they said, what? I need you to write me a letter saying, the only way you're going to approve me on this loan to build this project is if, if I have a this square footage of building, because that would make the property valuable enough for you to lend the money because the leasable square footage in case it ever defaulted. Just write me that letter so I can So I wrote that letter, Meineke to approve that letter. That's what made, had them approve me to, for the bigger building. It was a little bit slick, but I really wanted the ultimate 10 bay plus Meineke center. And I wanted to add all the other options, which when they saw what happened, when I gutted all the work that they didn't want me to do and put into another one, when I went into the store, I discussed it with Meineke while I was in the construction. I said, I need to be able to do full service. And so at that point, I became a test center for Meineke to do aftermarket services other than mufflers. And I had to have a sign on the wall that said at this location only, all those items had to be printed on the invoices that said that. And I had to make sure that it wasn't covered the warranty anywhere else other than this location. But they wrote me an addendum for this and for two other properties that I purchased in 1997 to be developed as new buildings that I also wound up building later on. It's pretty interesting that you even say, and I don't think it was even slick. I think it was smart what you're saying about the letter and having so many square footage. It's like, you're always trying to figure out how to make this happen throughout your story so far. It's not like you just went and said no, because maybe there's probably plenty of other people who'd be like, okay, I'll only do sick baits. But you figure out a way that, hey, how can I make this work? And I guess you just start thinking in your head. That's what even what you said kind of in the beginning. You just got to back off, relax for a minute, and then try to figure it out. It's just, what do I have to do? How do I do this? Not, you know, I can't do this. I, this is, I'm determined. And so what I actually did was not only did I get that letter, but I went to my contractor. I made him put a fake petition wall inside the five bays. So it would be five bays and five bays. And actually, just because I didn't know for sure my nickname was going to let me do this all the other services. We was, while I was in construction, I was negotiating with them and I actually laid pipe for another office in the last bay in case I did have to build that wall and did have to build another auto center for some other services. It was underground, ready to be built. It cost me $8,000 more to put the drainage in that section. 
but it was a contingency plan that if they didn't let me use all the bays and do full service, I would put the wall up and have the center next there. And I was going to do what I wanted to do. Regardless, one way or another, I was going to do what I wanted to do because I knew that that was lucrative for me and my family. And it was just a matter if I could live within their guidelines or I have to live with another brand inside that building, which is not really equitable because quite frankly, you're having two managers, two payrolls, two books. If it's one, it's just a lot more streamlined. And so I learned a lot from this exercise, but it wound up to be that where I did pass over a little bit is that in the early 90s, I really was getting very involved with helping other franchises. They started to notice that I was really good at what I do and other franchisees would see me at the annual conventions a franchise convention, they would come and say, how do you do that? How do you open up and do so well in, in a tough area like that? I said, listen, I live in Florida. Come on vacation and spend a day or two with me, with your family. They can spend on the beach. You spend a day or two. And I wound up coaching people on other franchisees to come down. They'd sit with me the first day. I'd ask them a list of 20 questions that I would want to know if I took over their business, what I would do. And then the next day I would come in with a plan and I wouldn't like be obvious about it. Like it'd be slowly, but so what kind of text do you have in your place? How many? And what do you pay them? How do you pay them, by the way? And I'd write down notes and I'd say, you know, I tell me what your place looks like. How many bays are there? What kind of equipment you have? Do you do extra advertising? What do you do? Are you the best shop in town? Would you say your store looks the best in town? I just asked them all these questions. And that would lead me to, if I was the owner of that store, again, there was no Google Maps where I can go look at it. So I had to really listen to what they were telling me. Maybe they'd have some pictures, but most not. So once they would tell me that, I would say, okay, I ran that store and I took that store. What's the first things that I would do? First 20 things up to 20 things that I would do. So I came back with them the second day and based on the items that I asked them and their responses, I knew where they were weak. The second day, I said, you got to spend two days. The second day is me giving you a business plan and what you're going to step and do. So now if I would have turned around and picked the most expensive things for, oh, you got to buy a $30,000 wine machine. You got to buy another $8,000 sign. Some of these guys were like just barely making a living. So if I hit them with this big number, I lose all credibility with them. So what I would do is I would flip it and I would put the least costly things that they can do. Maybe it's just changing a system like putting them in technicians on commission. So they would- Or clean your bathroom better. Or clean the bathroom or paint the office. It's a bucket of paint. Well, go to a freaking Chambers of Commerce meeting and just hand out your business cards, damn it. So whatever the easiest things were, usually I made them do three to five of them on the first month out. The combination of you know one silver bullet. These three to five things will get you to a number. And that would gain trust because now all of a sudden they see their sales increase to what they never had before. And once we got to that, then it was like, what do I do next? Well, the next things may be a little bit of an expense, but not ridiculous. Do this, do that, change the sign, update the branding, whatever it may be. So we go through the process. And then later on, as they would get really good, I mean, I had stores hanging around six, $700,000 and literally after coming with me and coaching them for 90 days, the next year they're over a million bucks. Literally hitting it out of the park, like one after the other. And that spread around the franchise. And a lot of people started to come and consult with me for that reason, because I didn't just make any money yet. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Were you doing it for free or for fun or what? I just enjoyed the fact that my systems were working. And not to mention, you know, I think any good mentor actually gets just as much value as mentoring someone else and helping with the projects as that mentee receives because you're reinforcing everything that you know works, even when it's not your money and your business, it's working. And then also you find out what isn't working. You're more cautious with somebody else and you're more flamboyant with your own actual business. So it allows you to be cautiously optimistic on how you can see them grow. And when that happens, 
it just reinforces what you're doing is right and it makes you smarter. And so I did that for a lot of years and I made a lot of friends. And at the annual conventions, I got awards for Top Gun, Best Trainee, Number One Shop, and all these different things. And I wound up getting the million dollar ring, which was basically a ring that any store got over a million dollars. It was a gold ring. And then I was the first store in Meineke to ever do over $2 million. And I did that in my biggest store. The 10 Bay store? No. After the first 10 Bay, I knew this was the way to go. So I did another 10 Bay. And right after that, and I think I opened my last store in 2001 of Meineke, which was an 18 Bay shop. And it took me about two or three years, but I got over $2 million. The next closest store to that was my second store, which did about a million and a half. And then the next closest store to that was my third store. Ones that I own properties of, I just kind of like just sold them, sold them, sold them. I wasn't really interested in owning the businesses unless I owned the property. So I sold them and put them into the equity of buying property and building big mega centers that would be able to produce more revenue in the best neighborhoods. When I got good at knowing what was the best, I didn't mind spending more for it. So that's kind of how I really evolved until my biggest thought was uh, I did $2 million for like 12 years. 2.4 was the highest. And I did it for 12 years. And at the end of the 12 years, that was the two last store I sold, 2014, while I was building the Tip Wall franchise. So that's kind of how that evolved into that. And I'll just backtrack one thing. In the early 90s, at one of the conventions, the franchisor said to all the franchises at the convention, we're having complaints from customers that have the handwritten receipts and they're sloppy. They can't read them well. So Radio Shack just came out with this computer with a little dot matrix printer, a little ping pong ball, but it actually allowed you to code in where you could put the name, the address, the phone number, the year, make a model in a typewriter style on the computer and print it out on invoice so they would be nice and neat. And they want someone to take this on or a group of friends and everybody in the convention, no, 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 we don't want it. We don't want it. And I was the only guy in there and I raised my hand and said, I'll do it. I'll be your guy. With that, they sent me a free computer and printer and said, you're going to be our test center. You're going to be our technology guy. And so we want you to tell us what we can do to make this work and improve it and make it better. And quite frankly, I didn't even know this at the time, but that's the best thing that ever happened to me because that allowed me to learn computers, technology, the first Meineke website, the first Meineke internet system, the first franchise communication, the first email marketing system, the first postcard marketing system. Everything was centralized, electronic ordering from the vendors. So this one job that I was assigned to and meeting with the C-level executives, getting very close and learning a lot from them, and basically working with the marketing department, the vendors department, the reporting for financial departments, and just learning how everything works. From that point, it was just my vision. Whatever I wanted to be in the system, I would look at everything else that was out there and try to implement this system and then bring it up to Meineke. And then I was really aggressive. I'd get up there and there'd be all the C-level execs at the table and I'd come up there and I'd say, Charles, what do you got this time? We're thinking about doing this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, that's a good thing to add, but I got all these things. I mean, I want this, I want this, I want this. And I, ah, we appreciate your enthusiasm, but we just really want to do this. I'm like, wait a second. You're telling me that you want all the franchisees to be successful like me, but yet you're not giving them the tools that I had to do build on myself. So let's just do this and they'll be successful because they can measure it. The financials, they can measure the management, the electronic ordering. They can see their inventory terms. They can know what product lines and classes, what they're selling. So all these different things are where I really learned a lot, most of which they implemented over time, but it was frustrating because I just wanted to go, go, go. 
And again, electronic ordering, I was meeting with all the manufacturers and distributors that were selling through Meineke to get their catalog data put into the computer. So I, I made a lot of friends out there from marketing companies to cataloging vendors to other franchisees that asked me for different things they wanted, commission structures in the computer, time clocks in the computer, different things that they wanted. I was the guy that they went to and I, yeah, I could do that. And I'd work with the software development team and say, I wanted to do this, this, and this. And I really had a good time doing it. And that was really my passion for a lot of years of really getting into technology and learning how to be in the forefront. Now, I was not a coder. I'm a business developer. So I'm really a systems guy. I want to figure out how do I make these things work where I don't have to as much. How does it give me the answers that I want? And I was really intrigued by everything that was able to do for me. And I became an expert marketer. I became friendly and really good at negotiating vendor deals. I became a good trainer. And I, in operations, I really started to put commission programs together because it was all based on what I created and a system that I was able to have free reign with in some ways. So that really allowed me to be able to understand the mechanics and the interworkings of business beyond anything I could have done if I was not the technology guy for that company. Yeah. And what year did they implement that technology? This was in the early 90s. I want to say it was about 91, 92. Okay. And it could have been a year or two earlier or later. It was about that time. But by the time I opened up the first building that I bought, I was already into it for a couple of years. By 94, that's when you know AOL was coming out with the dial-up. And I went to mine and said, really, do you want us to transmit? Do you want us to get all these invoices every week? and print it and put all those stickers on the envelope and mail you the handwritten uh, weekly reports? Or do you want me to just press one button and send it through AOL online and you'll get a fax that's reporting my documents and we save all these stamps that you give to us to send and all these envelopes and all this mailing and you're getting it real time that day instead of later on. And so at first they didn't want to do it, but after a year or two, they worked with me and we built that system. And then we went to electronic financial reporting. I went to electronic ACH withdrawals so that people didn't have to send in checks. I mean, all these things that allowed us to grow, allowed us to manage the advertising budget better because everything that was billed, it showed you how much you were spending on royalty and advertising fees. So you could really get a clear picture what you were spending more so than just writing it down on paper. It really was a big experience for me to be able to um, work in that technology team and really build something from scratch with their dime and my foresight. So you built this all the way up till 2014 because it's kind of like a 20-year jump almost, right? <laughs> Would you want to do a second part of the interview, kind of where we pick up, or do you just want to run through these last 26 years or so? From that point, it depends on how much detail you want to know because from after Meineke, basically I went through some other growing pains. After 2001, I built the biggest Meineke and I decided about two years after, I figured, let me get this one. There's a big one, a lot of investment. It's growing. And I was making so much money. I just really wanted to just take a break and think what I wanted to do again. And although I already had mapped out three different cities that I was going to buy properties and build these stores, I started to read books and thinking about the way the new economy is going. This is about 2004. Okay. And so one book I read was by an economist, Robert Allen. I believe it's Multiple Streams of Income. And that was a really productive book for me. Of course, Rich Dad, Poor Dad really helped me out a lot with real estate. As I said, the art of the deal was inspiring and then let me understand the difference between working for income, whether it be a job, a career, or even a business that you're working every day versus getting passive income from a business that's a company that's actually working for you or real estate that's actually bringing you or financial investments that will bring you money. That's more of a passive 
even buying real estate and renting it out. So all those are passive. So really broke that down for me and helped me a lot and made me think I want to go in a different direction now. The skill set that I've learned is really good, but I want to do something different. That's perfect. We'll end it there if that's okay. Because that way, do you think we can pick it up at 2004? Is that a good transition part where we've kind of learned everything you've done through Meineke? Or what point do we want to get to here within the next couple of minutes where we can leave people intrigued to tune into the next episode? I would say that what you probably want to pick out after I read those books, I chose two different additional businesses that I wanted to try. One was really when I started Tip World was 2006. I bought a six-door chain. And my thing was is that I came down here and I built Meineke's franchise system for them. I built it for me too, and I'm very grateful, but I built it for them. And I know it's a lot of my well doing. And so I felt that I could probably build a better system, but I came down here to open up an aftermarket car stereo business. So damn it, I'm not just going to open up this business. I'm going to freaking create the franchise model that I'm going to be able to launch and I'm going to open up hundreds of these businesses. And that was really what I wanted to do. So the two things I wanted to do is when I read the book about multiple streams of income, it said the new economy that's coming in is going to be new jobs and new learning and new things. So being able to train people would be a good thing. And I didn't want to be a stand-up speaker to get a one-time money. And I went round and round and said, you know, being a franchisor is training people and I think I could do better. So that was one thing I wanted to do. And then the second thing I wanted to do is I wanted to do e-commerce because e-commerce was up and coming. So I wanted to go and do where I read how Walmart has their electronic ordering systems and it's going to start selling to retail customers when Amazon was coming up. So I said, I want to sell e-commerce and I want to open up that business as a fun thing. Again, I had more money coming in than I needed to worry about making money. I just now want to do something that I wanted to do because I didn't need the banks anymore. I didn't need anybody else's money anymore. I had credit lines of three, $4 million. I can just borrow up that credit line, buy anything I want. I'm my own bank now. So it really wasn't about that. It's really just what I wanted to do and what excites me. And the two things were is building and operating an e-commerce business and building a franchise business for the brand that I wanted to build when I came down here. And that really started about 2005. Both of them were the thought in my mind and the momentum to start. I would say picking up in 2005, when I had this insight to be able to go into these two industries would probably be the pickup to get into the second part of this. And there were some serious tough times with one of these things that are now, just as today, I told you, we just launched a new website today. My technology that I spent almost $2 million for on building Auto Parts Network, which was one of my technology companies, allowed me to fail so I can understand how to win and implement that technology into my franchise system. So that's kind of like where it'll be a good segue. Well, yeah, that's perfect. Maybe at the beginning, next one, we'll, we'll even look at some of the negative things that might even happen and then the transition you're going to make it because everything so far sounds like it's been up and up and up. And obviously you've been learning along the way, but maybe this was a good hook to have people interested to come back and listen to the next part of the episode. We've got about 15 more years to cover. I think we did a good job covering from the 80s up to about 2004. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And so if you want the second part of this interview, it's actually available right now if you're a Patreon member. Just go to your Patreon feed and check out Patreon episode eight. And basically, if you thought the first part of this interview was good, the second part only gets better. And if you're not a Patreon member, then check out the episode description below on how you can become one. And after signing up to become a Patreon, you'll instantly get access to the second part of this interview. So 
I have a whole nother hour with Charles. It's not like we're just talking for 10 or 15 minutes. We've got a whole nother hour where I discuss things like, well, maybe it'd be better if I just give you a preview of what you'll be hearing on the second part of this interview with Charles. I was really proud that they came out. They wanted to learn from me. I did a whole speaking thing for them. They rented out a room in a hotel and then they took us out to dinner. And I remember there was one time when we sat out that dinner, the CEO sat next to me and God help him. He's listening to me now. He just leaned over to me. We sat down, just getting ready to order. And after having a great day and him like being my bud, thinking like, wow, this is great. He leaned over to me and he said, so what the university did you go to? And I said, I didn't go to university. He goes, well, what college did you go to? I said, I never went to college. I came down to Florida with two suitcases and I started opening up your franchises all over South Florida. That's what I did. And when I said that to him, he's a real Ivy League guy. He just literally like, took a step back away from me, almost in a way I felt ignored me all night, where he was all over me as the, his key guy. It seems that like I just wasn't in the club anymore. And I felt bad about it. The expression he, I got, I never thought about it before, but it hurt. It really hurt me. And I just sat there like all night. Look, everybody else was the same, but he just was kind of like almost sat a little further away and didn't acknowledge me or continue talking. Where I disappointed him in some way. Or he was disappointed that I wasn't of the caliber of Ivy League school that he was, that he felt that it was because I was doing so well in business. I was his number one guy. I was training his whole team how to develop their franchise, but I was not good enough because I didn't go to an Ivy League college. So when that happened, it took me a little bit, took me back. I went home. I talked to my wife. Said, I never felt like this before. I don't get it. Why would that be important? And she said, don't feel bad. She goes, listen, you run this whole company. You're doing better than them. Don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing. And she made me feel a little bit better about it, but it took me a little bit to get over it and think about it. And I think everybody needs to have two ways that they're going to grow in life. All of it is there. If you want to check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed. You got to become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there.